This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we're going to be talking about how we can reclaim our students and why children are more anxious, aggressive, and shut down than ever. We're also going to dispel some of those COVID-19 myths and then give you some real strategies on how to deal with the pandemic from an emotional financial and spiritual perspective the sunday night health show podcast starts now there's so much anxiety going around and we're noticing that our children are more anxious aggressive and shut down than ever joining me on the line is fabulous author hannah beach uh, who wrote the book reclaiming our students why children are more anxious aggressive and shut down than ever and what we can do about it uh, she co-authored this book with Tamara Newfield Stryjack. Good evening, Hannah. Hello. Happy to be here. Oh, I'm so glad you've joined in on this subject because I think it's a, a critical subject. I, I just want I just have one story that I want to share very quickly mm-hmm. <laughs> in that, uh, and then therefore my guess as to why the kids are so anxious and I'm certain I'm wrong. Um, or maybe <laughs> I'm partly right. Uh, I remember walking by a, a grade one class where I heard, or grade two, it was a, a mother speaking to a teacher and they were dividing up the kids and putting them into a split class. And so this mm-hmm. mother was literally screaming at the teacher so that I could hear her outside going through the name of every she wasn't happy that her child had been put into a split class and so she was going through the name of every child basically in the neighborhood saying the same line screaming at her you mean to tell me that so-and-so is smarter than my child you mean to tell me that so-and-so is smarter than my child oh my goodness so (laughs) is it the the competitive nature of the parents <laughs> these days that is contributing to why our kids are more anxious? Um, there is a whole plethora of reasons why um, kids are more anxious and aggressive and shut down than ever right now. And we were seeing this um, pre-COVID. We wrote our book before COVID and it was released during COVID. So um, it's only spiked actually since COVID. But I mean, yes, it's, I think that that is an indication not just of parents, but of our culture being highly, highly competitive. Um, I think one of the, I mean, there's uh, quite a few reasons, but I want to just pinpoint maybe one right now. One of the reasons we've seen such a spike in um, anxiety, in particular, we have an epidemic of anxiety with kids, is that our culture is no longer taking care of our emotional health in the ways that it used to. So this isn't just um, a specific parent or a specific teacher or classroom or city. Or It's our entire culture in um, the Western culture. And one of the ways you see this is that we've replaced play for children with entertainment. And there's nothing wrong with entertainment. I love Netflix. I love entertainment. Everyone loves entertainment. But it's... Um, We've replaced it almost across the board, and there's, they are not the same thing. And so there's been dire consequences on children's behavior when um, nature was like, um, play was nature's way of providing children a place to digest and release their emotions, and the loss of it shows up in their behavior. So we used to have more void moments, like little empty moments. You know, like when you're sitting in a car and mm-hmm. you're just looking out the window and you didn't have a phone, a, a device that traveled with you, or you're sitting at the bus stop and you're just watching clouds because you're kind of bored. Kids have lost all those little empty times in mm-hmm. which a lot of the emotion that they had 
could be digested, released, and processed. And so we, and that's partly to do with our competitive and our very busy culture. Wow, uh, very interesting. So they've lost that time to reflect. And when yeah. you're talking about play, I mm-hmm. imagine you're talking about free play because play turned into play dates, and and yeah. which had a sense of control to it as well. So yeah, I mean the thing about play is that. The difference between play and entertainment is entertainment is something that comes into us. So we have, we are an overload right now. We're saturated. We're so full with things that are coming into our systems. Whereas play is something that um, is something that comes from inside of the child to the outside. It looks different as we hit adolescence, but it is something for all of us. It's a way that we release, we relax. It's something we do just for fun and um and that, that has changed um, with our culture because play normally takes root in a little bit of boredom. So when you have nothing to do, your brain, you might start doodling on a piece of paper, you might be bored enough to pick up something, and you start to create something that shares something from your inside. It's not something that's from this, an outer structure telling you what to do. And so you need boredom because that's that fertile ground which play takes root, and without it, you don't, you don't get as much play with kids that spontaneous play which is where they digest and they play what they're drawn to, where they release aggression, whether it's through sword fighting or whether it's taking care of a doll or building blocks. Or or if you even look at it as that example with the blocks, is that it's nature's way of them having them practice frustration naturally. If they build it, it falls down, they're frustrated, they try again, they're frustrated, but they're doing it through their own free will. No one's saying you build that tower of blocks and if you don't, you're in trouble. They're engaged and they want to do it. They're, it's, they're practicing being frustrated and becoming resilient with that frustration, naturally. And so why are we seeing this aggression in children um, well, yeah. in, that so you speak of in your book? The same thing with aggression, um, I guess there's a, well, it's a big question, but I'll, I'll try and answer it simply. There's, um, one is the lack of play. We have so much emotion stirred up in our children that there's no place for it to be released. And we as a culture are kind of funny about this. We take a very behavioral approach and we ask people to hold it in. And I mean, this is kind of a, maybe a weird analogy, but imagine if a child comes to school and we ask them to hold in their, let's just imagine it's, we're going to call it poop. Okay. Let's just imagine the aggression is poop. And we say to the child, if you are um, good today and you don't go poo, I'm going to give you a gold star. And the child being a very conscientious child says, okay, I'm going to try and hold it in because I really like my teacher and I really want to be good today. So at the end of the day, we say, good job. You held in your poop. That's great. Here's your gold star. And the next day we do the same thing. And the next day we do the same thing. And this child's, you know, you did so well holding your poop in. Keep going. You're going to keep, you are doing so well. You did, this is great. And then you can imagine what's going to happen on day six or day seven if the child hasn't had... Explosion. Hasn't had, yeah, exactly. We're talking massive, massive poop explosion here. And that's the same thing that we're doing with aggression. Instead of saying to a child, I see that you're filled with this you know, frustration or foul energy or whatever it is, let me help you find a way to get it out. We're asking kids just to simply hold it in. Right. And we're not... Rec- Therefore, we're only ever treating... The symptoms, which is the behavior, as opposed to the root cause, which is the emotion. And we need to be recognizing that our kids aren't coping in so many different ways, whether that's a lack of relationship or connection to the caring adults because we're living in a culture with so much disconnection, or whether that's helping them find healthy ways to release that don't um, hurt others 
and um, embedding some sort of practices for release into our classrooms because kids aren't getting it in the same way um, at home um, in our culture because of how busy and programmed and no places for play, which again was nature's way of taking care of uh, taking care of that. Right. Yeah. And we, we were, um, you know, we're no longer in the class. The pandemic in many ways has changed a lot of things. I think a lot of yeah. things got out of hand um, yeah. in life. That instant fast pace, give me everything, give it to me now. You know, um, this perfection, everybody showing pictures of themselves and their perfect lives on on Instagram mm-hmm. and social media. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it did teach us a little bit or remind us we need to calm down. We need to go out in nature. We need to exercise. We need That's to feel true. better, eat better, start cooking from home kind yeah. of things. But it also... Um, you know, lots of kids are not back in the classroom. So, uh, you know, it's it's a bit of a double whammy. How, because the student-teacher relationship is at risk here. So how can, uh, or how do you recommend that uh, when kids are online now, uh, again, connection electronically, how do you build and feed and protect that student-teacher relationship, especially in a pandemic? I know. it's It's been so challenging. And I think that one of the gifts of the pandemic is pandemic is exactly what you were saying is all of a sudden people are going oh my goodness relationship is so important this is where change comes from we're hardwired for connection so all of a sudden when we lost it people we got it and that that's really exciting for me in this field that people are really understanding this the power of this now and i'm seeing teachers doing absolutely extraordinary things even online right now i'm watching people um connect making sure they use names um coming up like using the names as often as they can children love hearing their names mm-hmm. online like ha- having that they're showing pets um i was teaching a course with tamara my um, co-author at the university here in the faculty of education and um we were online and it was the first time i taught we were in the middle of the pandemic so we had to quickly switch and there's different ways. In some ways, we were able to do things like sometimes just one-on-one, just meeting with a student. We got to know some students in ways that we didn't even get to know them in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So there's different gifts and there's different challenges. It means slowing down. It means putting relationship over rigor right now and understanding that when we create that safety and the connection, the learning is going to come. We're all in this together. And something you brought up at the beginning, which is we need to be on the same side as teachers, as parents and teachers right now. Like if there was ever a time to come together as a community, it's now. We used to have that naturally when parents, you know, would drop off kids at the gate and you'd have that moment of connection when we were in villages, you know, a long time ago. And (laughs) and we don't have that anymore. We have it even less online. So it it means more intentionality on the behalf of the teacher to connect with the family and the parents to be supportive of the teachers so that we can come together and everybody wins, teachers, well, parents, and kids. That's awesome. And it's an amazing book. I really appreciate it, Hannah. Uh, Reclaiming Our Students, Why Children Are More Anxious, Aggressive, and Shut Down Than Ever, and What We Can Do About It. Uh, you can order it online at reclaimingourstudents.com if you like. Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Maureen. I really appreciate you taking the time to have me on. You're very welcome. Well, it's a great book, and I highly recommend it, and I also highly recommend you let your children play freely as well. (laughs) Talking about anxiety and health conditions, uh, and joining me on the line is Dr. Karash Adelotti. He is clinical director at LU Mind Brains Centers. 
And uh, Dr. Alati's journey in holistic brain health began as an immunology student at McGill. He observed that foods had a major impact on his immune system, and this improved immune system not only kept him away from illnesses, but also turned his brain into a calm and happy one to the extent that people around him nicknamed him the Zen Dude. I bring you the Zen Dude. Good evening, <laughs> Dr. Alati. <laughs> Hi, Maureen. How are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? Good, thank you. Great. Uh, thanks for joining me on the program to talk about this very important subject because um, the the food that we eat uh, directly relates to how healthy we are. I know myself. If I you know fall off the wagon in terms of eating you know too many chips and Oreo cookies and whatever, <laughs> um, then I don't feel as well and I'm not as energetic and whatever. Um, but. Also, so there's a relationship here. We talked a little bit about the relationship between trauma and anxiety and and health conditions. And so what is that relationship and, and why does that occur? Well, um, one of the things that we always look at is how our mind and body are connected. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned that uh, what we eat matters, uh, which means that um, what we put in our gut uh, affects how we feel and how our thinking is affected. Now, let's take that to uh, a situation where we have trauma or a high level of stress or anxiety. And um, basically what we look at is how hormones that are created through these experiences uh, can impact, uh, first of all, our body and also our brain. One of the things that probably people don't realize Trauma is not necessarily just stored in the brain, but also stored in the body. And uh, there's quite a bit of uh, research done in this area. And uh, the stress hormones that are produced from a high-anxiety situation, such as trauma, uh, can really um, set the uh, tone for some future autoimmune diseases, um, such as uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Or Crohn's disease. In fact, there was a very uh, good research just recently done on this, and uh, it showed a high association between such as the, some of these autoimmune conditions and uh, trauma. Now, one of the uh, particular areas that uh, they've been focusing on is the primary stress hormone called cortisol, uh, and uh, cortisol is basically a steroid hormone, and we, we we know that we give it to people or patients who have inflammation. You've been dealing with, uh, I mean, your nursing area, I guess you, you've, you've seen that quite often. I have. To, yes, and to reduce inflammation, we give um, basically chemicals similar to cortisol. Now, what happens is when people experience high levels of stress and trauma for, for a long time, our body uh, becomes resistant to cortisol. It doesn't respond anymore uh, as well to it, or it doesn't produce enough. And cortisol uh, is what we use to uh, cut back inflammation in the body. So when we uh, don't have enough of it, what happens is, uh, or we don't respond properly to it, we, we start to have uh, too much inflammation, which is, which is basically the precursor to some of these autoimmune conditions. And, and can some of the stress, and, and as you talked about um, healthy eating, can that relate to uh, a person's mood or short temper? Um, you know, as you say, you know, it affects the mind. Uh, what we put into our guts affects the mind as well. And, 
you know, with label blood sugars or up and down and not making healthy choices, having high glycemic index foods or high carb diets um, and, and added stress as well. Uh, and a lot of people emotionally eat too. Um, does that affect uh, somebody's mood and then ultimately a, their relationship? Absolutely. Um, what we eat, um, I, had, I, I learned this from actually, uh, I was doing yoga once, once and um, one of the yoga master said what, what we eat is what we become, basically. And um, that couldn't be any um, more true. Uh, it, uh, because what we do in terms of the nutrition um, affects uh, the lining of our gut. And uh, we have an immune system actually completely uh, associated with our gut called uh, gut-associated lymphatic tissue. And that immune system uh, keeps things out of our body. Uh, things that are harmful. And what we have to realize is that uh, the brain and the gut uh, are like a super highway. Everything is connected. So if we are not able to um, reduce inflammation at the gut level uh, to the food that we eat, uh, it will affect our mood uh, in the long run. You know, I get a lot of patients in my clinical practice who they say, um, you know, they, they have anxiety and they, they're in denial. They don't want to admit that they have it. They would rather have any other medical condition on the planet. And, and they also will say they don't want to get treatment for it because they'll say, ah, I'm too old. I'm too, you know, I'm beyond that or whatever. Is, is, are people too old to get the help for stress and anxiety to learn to manage it? I think one of the things that probably people don't realize is they've been living with anxiety for so long, they don't know how it feels to be living without it. Um, and uh, I can tell that the, the people in particular that uh, having a calm mental health and uh, being able to go through life without worrying about things or without uh, having your mind just running uh, nonstop uh, is actually quite an uh, enjoyable experience. Um, you know, it's not just getting away from anxiety, but actually having a life that's calm and quiet and comfortable. And, uh, of course, they can get uh, lots of different ways of uh, reducing this uh, stress and anxiety. Um, we have, you know, both biological tools, uh, such as nutrition um, and obviously medication, but uh, also lifestyle changes, uh, you know, uh, physical activity, aerobic exercise in particular has been shown to really reduce that uh, stress level and anxiety, um, or um, some of the psychotherapies, or, uh, or you know, we call that talk therapies, uh, can be extremely effective to reduce that stress, such as cognitive behavioral therapy or uh, um, mindfulness-based meditation exercises. And I see that you offer those at LU Mind Centers for Brain Excellence, in addition to uh, clinical hypnosis. Um, Thank you so much. We'll run out of time, unfortunately, but we'll definitely get you back. Dr. Edelotti, love chatting to you on the air. And uh, I will mention that you're not just the Zen dude, but you are a psychiatrist as well and uh, the medical director at LU Mind Centers for um, Brain Health. So thank you so much for Brain Excellence. 
But right now, we're going to get back to that subject that weighs heavy on everybody's mind every single day, and that is COVID. What is the truth? What are the myths? Well, joining me on the line is Dr. Nick Withers. He's a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of British Columbia Faculty of Medicine. A 22-year veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces, Dr. Withers is a partner and owner of 24-7 Occupational and Emergency Medicine Solutions, where he provides COVID-19 screening services for remote industries such as diamond mines. His team has been closely involved with the screening and management of some 6,000 employees over the past six months. Recognized as an expert in the field, he has been a consultant with the Legislative Assembly of Ontario as well as the Office of the Auditor General of of Ontario. I have personally worked with Dr. Withers for almost five years now on another project and, and am delighted to welcome him to the show. Good evening, Dr. Withers. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. Great to be working together again. (laughs) Absolutely. I have to say. Um, So lots and lots uh, about COVID-19 out there. And, you know, not everybody is on the same page. And a lot of people have a lot of questions. And there are a number of myths about COVID-19. What are some of the most common myths that people believe about this virus? Well, I certainly think that, uh, you know, the whole issue of testing is one that becomes really challenging for really some of even clinicians to understand, but certainly the average, average person to understand. Most of us think that when you have a test, like a COVID-19 test, you know, it's either positive or negative, like a binary sort of answer. But the reality is that uh, testing can be a lot more complex than that. And sometimes, you know, a negative test is not always negative. Normally when it's positive, it means that at some point you've had COVID-19, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're contagious. And that's another thing that can be really confusing. Right. And, you know, the other thing about um, my question, or a lot of people say my test was negative, but is it negative in the moment? And, you know, a few hours or a few days later, it can be positive if you've been exposed to somebody with a positive COVID-19 diagnosis? Uh, Absolutely, Maureen. And the other thing is that you can get exposed, say, I don't know, tomorrow. And because there isn't enough virus in your system for you to test positive, you may not test positive until day four, five, six, seven. That's normally when people will start to test positive. But it is, yeah, it's a funny disease. It's not one that has read any of the textbooks. So unfortunately, on day six, you may test positive. Day seven, you may test negative. And day eight, you may test positive again. And we don't really know why that happens. Right. And if you have a question for the doctor, number, the number to call is one 399 That's one 399 Dr. Withers, a lot of people put a lot uh, into testing, uh, forgetting that the public health measures that have been recommended are extremely effective, uh, like social distancing and masks. So, so tell me uh, about the effectiveness of these things. Is it testing that, because a lot of people want testing in their offices or, you know, what about the public health measures such as wearing masks and and washing your hands and physically distancing? 
I think the measures that you've mentioned are extremely important. You know, we've seen those sort of super spreader events when, you know, whether young people or sometimes not young people have had, you know, various social events, often in good nature, you know, whether it be uh, celebrating a senior's birthday party or perhaps, you know, one of the unfortunate passing of somebody like some of the funeral. And we've seen, you know, there seems to be some people that are very, very effective at spreading COVID. In fact, I read an article earlier today from uh, the Atlantic suggesting that 20% of the people create 80% of COVID cases, and we don't know why. Now, I'm not sure if those numbers are exactly accurate, but certainly we have seen multiple super spreader events. And the other big issue is that we do know there is asymptomatic carriage. So people will go and, and be able to spread um, COVID-19 and not have any symptoms themselves. And we also know that you actually are very contagious um, in the 48 hours in advance of demonstrating any symptoms. So that is why all these public health measures are so important, because there are people around you that may not know they have the disease or are carrying the virus and can make you sick. And if you don't, uh, you know, treat them with the, the same measures that have been recommended for, for so long now, you're at risk of getting the disease. And it's not out of anybody's, you know, bad will or bad nature. Absolutely. We have a caller on the line, John from Pitt Meadows, British Columbia. Good evening, John. Hi, good evening. Thank you for taking my call. I just heard you say that sometimes you have these false positives and false negatives, or you can test positive on the seventh day. So I'm just wondering, you know, how effective are these measures of, of, of isolating people or quarantining them basically for two weeks if, you know, if it's a if they test positive, but it's actually a false negative and they, you know, they can't leave their house for two weeks and have to pay stiff fines. And also on the, on the flip side, if you test positive on the seventh day and that, you know, and you've had it for seven days, now you have to isolate yourself for two weeks from that day, but it's already your seventh day. So, um, you know, shouldn't the testing get better and not have so much of a quarantine? I, I don't know. I'm just wondering what his, his thoughts and opinions are on that. Thank you. Great I'll question. Hang up and to the answer. Thanks, John. Sure. Great question. Thank you, John. Yeah, it is actually really confusing and difficult. So you point out there that if somebody uh, tests positive on day seven, that they may have a 14-day a quarantine to follow. That may not be accurate in that, you know, most times we will let people who have not had symptoms for a minimum of three days and who have tested positive uh, or developed symptoms 10 days ago, sort of, uh, they're no longer required to be in quarantine. So just to clarify that again, say I become sick today and I test positive, and then in another um, five or six days, I'm feeling fine. Three days after that, as long as I get to day 10, I'm no longer contagious or considered contagious by most public health agencies. So uh, sometimes you can actually, uh, you know, shorten that down to about 10 days, but I would suggest consulting your public health experts or your physician on that one to make sure that you're not presenting any risk. Because one thing that I have noticed through this COVID pandemic is that every case has to be assessed on its own individual risk. It's very difficult to develop a, a stone-cold algorithm that fits everybody into it. So there's a lot of gray when it comes to COVID. I do recognize the frustration for families, particularly those that you know have young kids. As you know, many with young children, they will have coughs and colds constantly through the, through the winter. And therefore, it often results in parents have to stay home with their children. And of course, that's loss of income after what's already been an extremely challenging time financially for many. So yeah, you're right. The testing is not perfect. Unfortunately, it is the best we have right now. And they are looking at different tests. So right now, we use something called a PCR test where they try to reproduce the RNA of the virus. 
Uh, I know that antigen testing, where you're actually looking for chunks of the virus, is, uh, is up and coming. And, of course, we have antibody testing, but that doesn't seem to be quite as useful for screening or diagnosis because that usually shows up well after you've, turned, uh, you've been unwell or, or felt sick. And now that rapid testing, Dr. Withers, has been approved by Health Canada this week. That is correct. Yeah, I saw there was a new, um, uh, a new test from Abbott, I believe it was, right. that got um, approved. And it actually, yeah, it looks very promising. I don't think we have all the data on it yet. And I think that's one of the challenges is that we forget that although it seems like it's been forever, really in Canada, we've only seen this disease for about nine months. So we're really still learning about it. And, you know, a lot of money and, and time has been put into, you know, researching this, but it's still a very young disease in the grand scheme of things. That's right. And that's the rapid ID now uh, test that has been approved. Um, and it will be deployed to help Canadians across the country with rapid testing. Um, the, it's not as accurate, correct me if I'm wrong, um, it's not as accurate as the uh, nose tickling, if you will, type of test. Um, <laughs> yes, that's correct. Uh, we don't have great numbers on it yet because it is so new, um, but we know that we don't think it is as accurate as the traditional, what they call a PCR or polymerase chain reaction test, which is the, the standard in most provinces and, and worldwide. And and so do you think that people, a lot of people are worried, they're afraid to go out there, yet other people, you know, have this false comfort. Um, I don't know if you were listening to the program earlier, but I heard somebody say that she traveled quite a bit and she felt that she was safe because she traveled first class. Um, but the virus doesn't discriminate. But it, do you think the safest way to go out is uh, to wear your masks and to physically distance, hand wash, um, maybe stay out of inside of the restaurants, eat outdoors or do takeout? Um, are there measures that we can get back to living comfortably without having this constant fear of contracting the virus? Well, certainly, Maureen, as you know, we're blessed here on the West Coast with our climate, uh, so we can do much more outside, basically, you know, 11, 12 months a year. So I, do, I fully agree. Uh, the more you can do outside, the better. And, you know, I'll use my father as an example of what not to do. My father is uh, 90 years old, and my mom tells me that if he's gone out for a walk with the dog and he sees somebody come down the same side of the sidewalk, he'll almost jump in the bushes in order to avoid him. So I think that that is unnecessary. The reality is that it is very uncommon for cases to be spread outside when you're using any sort of social or physical distancing at all. And we have such a beautiful, beautiful uh, province. We should embrace that and get outside as much as possible and, and use that as well as it's very important for us to get outside just to take care of our own mental well-being because, of course, mental health is suffering in a big kind of way as a result of the social isolation and the other pressures that have come with COVID. That's absolutely correct. The mental health of many Canadians is suffering. I don't want people from Manitoba or Alberta to feel like they can't get outside, that we might have better weather than they do. But I don't, I don't necessarily agree with you on that. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> well, having lived, having lived in all those locations, I'm uh, very happy to be in Victoria, that's for sure. No uh, offense to our folks calling in from Manitoba. Uh, that's, wonderful, wonderful people. Yes, absolutely. And, and certainly uh, the winter sports, um, people can can get out and do that. Uh, but what, what are your thoughts on eating, uh, dining indoors in restaurants? And I really hate to say that. I say that with hesitancy because I know a lot of people have suffered economically. They've lost their jobs um, in, in that, in the tourism industry and in a number of other industries. Um, 
what, what do you think of eating indoors versus outdoors or takeout? Well, certainly I think there's been a, a fundamental change, obviously, in, in the way that the restaurants are now delivering their services. And, you know, to be honest, I think many of them are doing a really, really good job in trying to keep their clients and their staff safe. Um, obviously, if you had the choice between a patio versus inside from a safety perspective, I think that it would be, uh, you know, prudent to, to be outside. However, again, I think if you go into a restaurant and you see that, you know, they've uh, done all the distancing that they can do, that's well marked out, that their servers are wearing masks, um, you know, that they are very, very diligent when they greet you at the front desk. I think that's a, a demonstration that the leadership or the ownership of, of those facilities and, and those restaurants have done what they can to make it safe. And I think in, generally it's a pretty safe thing to do. But again, if you have your choice, I think outside is certainly preferable over inside. Um, but generally, I think uh, there have been cases in super spreader events in restaurants. There's no question about it. However, I think, uh, you know, generally it can be done very safely. Now, unfortunately, I've seen other places where it's been very unsafe. And, you know, I've sort of just said, I don't think I'll ever frequent there again. We were talking about restaurants and sometimes I have gone into a restaurant uh, outdoors and they have taken my name and phone number. I thought it was for another reason, but no, no. Um, and so this auto Automatically, we think contact tracing. Can you explain to the listeners what contact tracing is and why it's important? Oh, absolutely. Uh, contact tracing basically refers to the uh, process of identifying contacts of known or suspected cases in order to sort of educate them or implement other measures that uh, may reduce the spread of COVID-19 to others. So it's basically that, that warning system. As I mentioned earlier, if you were to you know, run into somebody tonight and get COVID-19, um, you wouldn't be contagious uh, you know, for a few days until the virus had a chance to reproduce, you know, possibly up to four to seven days. And so the whole point is to try to identify those people early before they can spread it to others and then implement the quarantine such that they can, uh, yeah, that you reduce the spread. So if somebody, if a restaurant has been notified that somebody dined there or at work, if somebody went to work and then later found out that they were COVID positive, the public health officials would uh, get notified of that and then contact everybody who has been uh, in touch with that person. So it's really a matter of we, we need to use our memories <laughs> these days to remember where we were and uh, who we were with. Yes, we do. And it becomes very challenging, actually. So we've gone through this um, in our business several times where we've had to do contact tracing for uh, folks that have traveled on planes and made it up to these remote locations. And it's very difficult for people to remember all those things, but it is actually exceptionally important because that's, of course, the way that we can start to flatten the curve, so to speak. And, you know, there's been some studies that have suggested that, you know, people will get very freaked out and worried when they get that note, hey, you have been, con- you know, you've been at a restaurant where there has been a positive covid uh, but they can be somewhat assured. I mean, they should be careful, of course, but somewhat assured that, you know, at least one of the studies that they followed people out for about 10 days, that they found even only about 12% of household contacts developed COVID-19 mm-hmm. and less than 2% of non-household contacts, which would be most people at a restaurant, developed uh, COVID-19. So, you know, the odds are still well stacked in your favor. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't take that warning seriously, because, of course, you should. 
but you also shouldn't be at home stressed out, uh, you know, filling out your will thinking, well, that's it, I'm done. I, I was at a restaurant where there was a positive case. Right, that's good to know. And also, um, we only have about a minute left or 30 seconds left here, but um, people uh, who, ha- if you were less than 15 minutes wearing your mask, physically distant from that person, is that even less concern for you? Way less concerned. So you wouldn't even fall into a high-risk contact at that point, and you wouldn't need isolation, I wouldn't expect. Again, I would ask the public health uh, folks in your jurisdiction to make that decision because they're different across each province. But generally, no, you'd be considered a uh, low-risk contact. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Withers, for joining me on the program. I really appreciate it. And um, if people would like to uh, procure your services, retain your services, how would they get in touch with you? Oh, they could uh, get me at uh, contact, C-O-N-T-A-C-T, at O-E-M-S dot C-A. That's O-E-M as in Mike, S dot C-A. Thank you so much. We'd love to get you back on the program. You know, certain things happen in life and, you know, it, it changes our plans and, uh, you know, a fall in the bathroom or, um, you know, accidents certainly happen. Uh, time of life occurs as well. And so sometimes we lose our focus or lose our clarity and, and don't feel empowered to create the fulfilling and purposeful next chapter of our lives. Well, joining me on the line from the United Kingdom is Rachel Lancaster to talk about how to feel empowered to create a better, more fulfilling life for yourself. Good evening, Rachel, or for you, it's good morning, isn't it? It is good morning. Hello. (laughs) Thanks for getting up so early for me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Oh, well, I'm so glad that you're here because I know that you help a lot of women uh, find clarity and feel empowered at a certain time of life, that midlife, which a lot of women struggle with that time of life, whether it be they have job issues or uh, they, you know, they've lost a, a partner to somebody 15 years younger, or um, they don't know what they're going to do with their next, um, the next chapter of their lives, or maybe they they're dealing with weight issues or health concerns. So, so how is it that you help women find clarity as it relates to this ageist issue that we have in our society? Well, I thought it was really interesting actually listening to, to your previous caller and how difficult it is when, when we have something like that that reminds us of our age and that we are carrying on with life and we have these physical ailments and things. And it can be really difficult to remember who we are underneath all of the narratives that society tells us about aging and that, you know, we're on a a steady downward decline when we reach a certain age. And actually COVID has brought this really to the fore as well. So as well as all of society's existing narratives about, you know, where we are in our lives, we've got COVID as well telling us that we need to shield after a certain age or, you know, we are more susceptible to, to the disease the older we get. So I really help, I I do particularly help women, although I love to get this message across to men as well, that, you know, we're not on a decline. Um, We have so much more power over our choices and over our lives as as we get older and that we are incredibly valuable members of society. And I believe that, you know, society needs us probably now more than ever uh, to step forward and, and to help. So it's about 
looking at what women particularly, but, but it could also be men, what they want to do with the next stage of their lives. Because as you say, we get to this sort of messy middle of life where all the cards are thrown up in the air and, uh, and it can get a bit messy. You know, you've got menopause in there, you've got your emptiness, perhaps you're caring for you know, older relatives and you've completely lost sight of who you are because you've put on all these personas over the years and, and you've really lost sight of who you are. So I help people, women, peel those layers back. If you want to think of it as an onion, you know, I'd start peeling away the layers. Who are you underneath? Who do you want to be now? So it's about getting back to your most authentic self. I think David Bowie said that aging is this wonderful process where we become who we were always supposed to be, which I think is a wonderful way of looking at it. It's absolutely I, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. What do you say to people, and I've heard this from women and men, and they, uh, that they don't, uh, they feel like it's over. They're, you know, especially a lot of people who have lost their jobs and they were working, they were gainfully employed, they were doing extremely well, they were at their game, whatever that was. And, you know, the circumstances were such that the company in spite of the stimulus packages, could no longer afford to keep them on. They, they were a high-level um, operations person or and with a big salary, and and then they decide, well, you know what? They're they're kind of make letting someone else make the decision for them. They'll you know they'll think I'll never be able to work again. I'm too old. Nobody wants me anyway. What do you say to those people? Well, I think the first question I would ask them is, how much money do they actually need not how much money do they want but how much do they actually need because when you work that out and work out whether or not you can cover that base you can then assess how much freedom you've got to do something else and um, you know I went through life thinking I had to have a job it wasn't until I reached my mid-40s until I realized that I could create a job and there are so many possibilities now for us, so much online, and COVID is making us move ever more online, that there are all sorts of possibilities to consider. So once you've got that idea of how much you need, then think about what you've always wanted to do. Because, again, if COVID is giving us anything, it's accelerating that desire that people have in midlife to make a difference, to leave a legacy, to do something rather than just pass their days, to actually do something that brings fulfillment, that creates purpose. Um, so have a think about what that might be and whether there is any feasible notion whereby you can do that and still be able to exist. And sometimes what will happen is that people can start a side gig and it might only be, you know, an eighth of their time or a quarter of their time, but it might get bigger and bigger. So I think now, certainly if you are laid off, take that opportunity to really dive deep and think, what do I want to do? What would I do if I was serious? If I got COVID and I'm going to die next week, what would I want to have done? Um, because there is no time like the present. 
And all we can do at the moment is live in the moment, is live right now in this moment, right yeah, now. Absolutely. This can be a very difficult time for a lot of people and, and only made worse by a global pandemic. Uh, how much comfort do we have in knowing we're not alone here, that other people are in a very similar boat? Well, I think everybody's in the same boat, aren't they? We're all suffering from the global pandemic. Um, and if you're a woman, um, if you identify as a woman, then you're going to go through menopause. So, so you're going to have that. So that's over 50% of the population. So I think we can take a lot of comfort in the fact that we're not alone. But we don't talk about it. You know, like menopause is still so taboo um, and it really shouldn't be. And I think... Um, it's also one of the reasons that I work with women is because this whole ageing thing is so much worse for women um, and all of the negative narratives that women have to cope with because so much of our value is tied up in our fertility and our beauty. And in many Western countries and certainly sort of Anglo-Saxon-based countries, um, we associate youth, uh, beauty with youth. We don't believe that beauty continues as we age. And that's one of the things I'm trying to change. But um, we can definitely um, look out and start having these conversations and talking to people and, and take, uh, take some comfort from the fact that, yes, we're, we're all in the same boat. Yes, we are. You know, and, and many women uh, or those who identify as women feel that life is passing them by or, or they feel fed up or bored. They've put so much into their families, perhaps, and as you mentioned, empty nest. And then I had a patient one time and she said that she had sent her fourth child off to university and she was having issues in her relationship and she had had a medical condition. I think she had hurt her back with a bit of stress or whatever. And, and she said she was alone in her house. Nobody was around and she laid on the couch and she just thought, is this it? And, you know, it was all those years of giving, giving, giving. And, um, and then, you know, it was just, you know, many women, I think, asked themselves that question, is this it? What do you say to those women? Um, it's absolutely not it. Um, when I like to sort of analyze my life, if I look at what I achieved between 20 and 50, that was 30 years, I achieved so much. But we assume that, you know, you get to sort of midlife and that's the end of it. But if you think of average life expectancy in the West, I mean, here in the UK, it's 81 for women and that's only average. So from 50 to 80, think what I could achieve. Think what I could do because I have wisdom, I have experience, I have lots of knowledge that I didn't have in the first 30 years. And while the first half of our lives, it's often sort of mapped out for us, isn't it? There's a trajectory that we go on. Um, and the second half, it's kind of up for grabs. But I think that's part of the excitement of it. If we can embrace that, if we can really embody that sense of possibility, then we can start to see that there is so much more that we can do. And there's a lovely thing that I want to tell, particularly women, um, that uh, there's one other creature in the world that goes through menopause, and those are whales. And when whales go through menopause, they then become the leaders of their pods. The whole, you know, they might be leading you know, 30, 40 whales. So they step into this new mm -hmm. position of leadership and power in the second half of their lives. 
And um, if you look back in evolutionary terms to humans, you know, hunter-gatherer societies, women, older women were really appreciated. They knew where the poisonous things were. They knew how to keep relationships on the road. And I think we've lost sight of that. We've lost sight of the power and the wisdom and experience of, of older people, but especially older women, because men are allowed to age and women really aren't. So... I always say, remember those whales. Think of those glorious whales leading their pods. And they might be doing this for another 50 years after menopause. So uh, I believe that the evolutionary reason for menopause, for whales, uh, for women just as much as whales, is that we're more valuable to our societies as leaders than as breeders. That's fantastic. Now, um, how can people get in touch with you to book that midlife breakthrough call? Well, um, you can find me at magnificentmidlife.com and on all the socials, I'm just Magnificent Midlife. Uh, yeah, so come on over and get inspired because I'm, I'm deeply, deeply compassionate about you certainly the world. Are. <laughs> <laughs> the world you, using this resource because, you know, we are a phenomenal resource. Absolutely. And, and just imagine, just going to look at COVID as well. I keep going back to COVID, but look at the countries that have done better than other countries. And what do they all have in common? They've got women, older women at the top. That's right. And, uh, yes. Uh, and and sorry, some guys. women, multi- <laughs> exactly. I'm always apologizing to the guys. Um, and some women multitasking too, like bringing babies and breastfeeding them while they're also managing the pandemic. Rachel yeah. Lancaster, I can't thank you enough. You've been a delightful guest and very, very inspiring, I must say. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.